0: Welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Our conversation today is about the disconnect between the governed in the MENA region and those who govern over them. My guest is Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of the International Interest. Sami, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Bill.
0: Now, what we want to talk about today is disconnect. The disconnect between governments and the people in the MENA region. How deep does it run? How serious is it, Sammy? I think it's, it's important to remember that this
1: is a region whereby uh, the leaders rule for decades, not uh, four years as is uh, common or, or eight years as is common uh, in Western countries. Uh, for example, you have uh, people who rule until uh, they go to the grave. Uh, so I think uh, when it comes to the the realities uh, on the ground, uh, many people live uh, in their entire lifetimes, will live through probably one or two presidents. If you're Tunisian, for example, many people only live through uh, Bourguiba and uh, Bin Ali, and it's only recently uh, that we've been seeing since the revolution there's been a change uh, in power, change in presidents, change in uh, prime ministers. But I think uh, elsewhere the situation is very different. I think when we're looking at the disconnect, I think it's also important to highlight that the mechanisms for uh, people expressing their opinions uh, on rulers or people expressing their opinions uh, on policy or their state of affairs uh, is very limited. Uh, elections are, are usually considered to be rigged. Uh, the media uh, landscape usually tends to lean towards uh, regimes with limited uh, limited space for opposition voices. When you're looking at research uh, think tanks, they tend to be geared towards uh, providing evidence uh, for Uh, sustaining the regime as opposed to providing genuine critique uh, of uh, regime uh, policies and when there is any real concentrated or organized bid uh, to express the popular will uh, these are usually cracked down on or crushed uh, due to sensitivities in the regime that any opening up for genuine uh, change uh, in response to the popular demand uh, in, uh inherently undermines the regime, undermines the foundations on which uh, the regimes are built, uh, which is not on a popular mandate, but on the
0: suppression of the popular will. Now, we, we're seeing this expressing itself in places like uh, Lebanon, like Algeria, like Iraq, like Sudan. Uh, but what threat does it really pose to these uh, ruling elites, these these power blocks that are in place? And as as you say, uh, many in place for decades and decades and decades. I think uh, the the problem is
1: that uh, once you taste power it's hard to let go and moreover Uh, I do genuinely believe that many of those who who come to power uh, through whatever means they manage to do so do harbor these dreams of bringing prosperity to their countries. I don't necessarily think that uh, people necessarily come to power with the intention of enriching themselves or with the intention of establishing themselves as dictators. I think everybody uh, dreams of going down in history as this great innovator and great uh, savior of their country that brought about that economic prosperity where people were happy. Uh, and 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 their they, their names are considered with those great heroes uh, of the past. But I do think that when reality kicks in, in that uh, you're dealing with uh, foreign policy dynamics, whereby you have an international order that does not lean in your favor, uh, where you have a, a lot of international interference. In the domestic politics, let's remember that this is a region uh, that only emerged from colonialism about 50, 60 years ago. Uh, France in Algeria is still very much a major player, uh, despite uh, Macron's uh, uh, insulting or defense of the insulting uh, of the sacred symbol of the Prophet Muhammad. In Tunisia, uh, you have even the Islamist parties like Ghanoushi asserting that the relation with France cannot be undermined because of how embedded France is uh, in the economy. Uh, you have it in Saudi Arabia, where the security arrangement with the U.S. means that if it moves left or right uh, or di- or diverges from that security agreement, then that carries uh, repercussions. Put on top of that, the 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 natural human nature of competition uh, domestically, whether that's between tribes, as we're seeing in Libya, whether that's between uh, individual personalities, as we're seeing uh, in Algeria, whether it's between ideologies. Uh, as we're seeing in uh, Tunisia, Uh, it's natural human nature to compete for power. Uh, But I think uh, what the regimes fear the most, those who are running the regime, those who have the vested interest in the regime, that understand that if the people are allowed to choose, quite simply they won't choose them, and they will relegate them uh, to the confines uh, of their own homes.
0: Yeah, well, if the people are allowed to choose, and and that's the the key, isn't it? But if we look at the demographics of MENA, it's such a young population. How much of this disconnect is driven by young Arabs? I think
1: this is a, a, a more complicated topic than I think is, is commonly uh, appreciated. I think there is a tendency to assert that this, there is now a young population who dream of uh, freedom, who have all these aspirations and ambitions, who are out of touch Uh, with their regimes who are still set in the old uh, international order and therefore this disconnect uh, is often painted in this idea of light versus dark, of good versus evil. But I think where it is uh, a positive uh, aspect, this disconnect between the youth and the regimes, is that the youths provide a catalyst for accelerating change whether that change is good or bad is a different topic but it accelerates change in Algeria for example uh, the civil war of the 1990s meant that Bouteflika was able to expand his power in the regime because the population were terrified that any challenge to that uh, power or to that influence would result in another civil war so the attitude was let's leave Bouteflika as he is and and that is better than going into civil war. But a youth population that didn't live through the civil war, they don't care, they don't have that experience. Down with Bouteflika and let's bring a new change, let's bring something different. So I don't think there's a generalized way in which we can look at this phenomenon of this disconnect between the youth and the regimes. I think each country has its own case-by-case basis and I do think that uh, perhaps uh, the, the issue is a bit more complicated than is often touted.
0: Well, all right, let, let's look at are there common threads and themes that run through the disconnect?
1: I think there is. Uh, The the common theme is that the the will of the population is denied and it's not denied just by regimes. It's denied by the international order uh, as well. We saw, for example, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, there was much concern and consternation over the choices that the electorate made, and I'm not talking just about the Islamists, I'm talking about the wider uh, trends that lean more towards religion, uh, that uh, Macron himself, uh, the French president, is on record as saying that it demonstrated a sort of regression that Europe had to get involved in in order to help uh, to uh, address. I do think that the, the, the common thread is that What the people want is denied by the regime and not preferred by the international order. So there are two reactions that take place. One by the regime, which is the suppression of that popular will through crackdown, imprisoning of activists, uh, through uh, propaganda, through denying uh, the space for uh, opposition and media, uh, space for people to voice uh, their dissent. And the other is by the international order whereby it engages in more subtle so, uh, social engineering whereby loans that are given to countries such as Tunisia, such as Egypt, such as Libya are contingent upon the implementation of values that perhaps those societies are not necessarily uh, aligned to. And, and I think this is the, the, the common thread. This idea that you have a young Sudanese or young Tunisian or young Algerian who cannot understand why there is this uh, double whammy of uh, the regime and the international order confining or restraining or containing uh, their desire for expression it may well be these populations make the wrong choices it may well be that these populations uh, choose a different orbit from that perhaps which the europe and the u.s are accustomed to however uh, the reality is Uh, that this uh, repression of that popular will drives discontent, drives instability, and brings about the very chaos that the Europe and the U.S. lament and seek to prevent uh, in the first place. So the direct answer to your question is that's the common thread, this idea that the popular will is resisted, the youth uh, are being resisted, and there is a concerted effort to contain the most potent catalyst for change in the region.
0: Now, you mentioned that uh, young Algerians don't remember the civil war and the horrors of the civil war. Therefore, they've been prepared to go out into the streets uh, to protest. What about the Arab Spring? We go back to 2011. Do you think there's a different generation now that's protesting? And if so, are they protesting in a different way than what happened in 2011?
1: I think there is a a tendency to to fit everything under the umbrella of the Arab Spring. And, And the reason I say this is that uh, Algeria, Sudan, uh, and these countries, and, and Lebanon and Iraq. While there are many similarities uh, to the Arab Spring, I do think there are certain uh, differences. Uh, I think in Tunisia, for example, it was an explosion when Bouazizi uh, burnt himself. We have to remember that at the same time, uh, Facebook was uh, it was the first time that Facebook had come into its prime. It was the first time uh, in which you had a landscape whereby news could reach the masses quickly uh, without being controlled or bypassing the filters of the government. So everybody heard that Bouazizi had burnt himself. Everybody uh, had seen the pictures and seen uh, the horror of what happened. And that evoked that reaction, that mass reaction. And at the same time, you had uh, the, the Facebook, which uh, showed the protests that were unfolding, that were taking place. And given the close proximity, you imagine somebody looking on their phone and seeing those protests. There was that sort of direct connection between the protests that made people take to the streets. And it was the first of its kind uh, in, in, in this regard. I think when it comes to Algeria, Sudan, and Lebanon, and Iraq, I think the regimes learned the lessons from uh, 2011. But going back to the, in terms of the people and the generation that are taking place, I do think that the the, the ones taking to the street today uh, are different from the ones taking, who took to the streets in 2011. In 2011, you had people who had had enough. They were fed up and they took to the streets and they protested because they had nothing else to lose. These protesters are people who are saying that there can be uh, a better life. These are people who at the time of the Arab Spring were only 10 years old or 11 years old. They weren't fully comprehending what was uh, taking place or what was going on. And that of course has various different implications and various different uh, dynamics which we can go into uh, later. But I do think that... Uh, The common thread between the two is his desire for freedom. But I think where the difference lies is that where there was this panic to adapt to 2011, which resulted in elections and a parliament in Tunisia and elections in Egypt and the like, I do think this time regimes are a bit better equipped... Uh, to handle these protests in offering piecemeal initiatives in a divide and conquer policy uh, in containing the potency uh, of these protests that results in the likes of Hariri returning to power in Lebanon, that results in uh, the regime asserting itself in Algeria again, that results in a negotiated transition in Sudan uh, whereby the army maintained a significant power and the Sudanese simply go back uh, to their homes. So I do think it's a bit different Uh, in terms of the expectations and in terms of the strategy and the environment in which it's taking place.
0: Mm. What about the Gulf states with their wealth and and the ruling families? Has the disconnect passed them by? I think the Gulf states are
1: a little bit different. I I do think that uh, there is a tendency to lump them all into one group when it comes to discussing the relations between the state and the people. We have to remember that in Qatar, in, in the UAE, in Kuwait and these other smaller Gulf states, Arabs are minority and the majority of the population are people who come from outside, whether it's from Bangladesh, whether it's expats, whether it's Pakistanis uh, or the like. Uh, so often there is this uh, sense that because they're a minority, there is more of a tendency of these populations to side or align uh, with their regimes to preserve that order. And it's also easier for these regimes to... Uh, to uh, appease those populations because they're generally smaller, because there's a lot of wealth, and because the wealth distribution uh, tends to be on a policy in which all of the main tribal factions are rich in their own right and don't necessarily have an incentive to uh, protest or revolt against the regime. I think in Saudi Arabia, it's a very different case altogether. Majority Arab population, overwhelming uh, majority, uh, tribal uh, in, 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 in the same sense, uh, 30 million population, uh, increasing economic crisis. Uh, I think that as crises have taken place, it's important to remember that uh, the Al Saud of the earlier generations of King Abdulaziz and King Faisal acknowledged that there needed to be a connect or connection with the population. So, in the constitution, Saudi constitution, uh, it states that any citizen has the right to approach any member of the royal family uh, without any obstruction. This was only changed when King Faisal was assassinated in 1975. But the point here is that there is an acknowledge. there was at least an acknowledgement amongst al-Saud that in order to maintain their power, they needed to be in constant connection uh, with the people. However, I think where the dependency on the us security agreement has increased over the years where the us has asserted itself when saudi arabia has sought to adopt unilateral or independent action whether that's the oil embargo in the 1970s whether that's on the palestine issue under king fahad uh, and king abdullah there's been a genuine uh, uh, move by al saud to move away from relying on the tribes and relying on the people to sustain their rulership, to relying wholeheartedly on international patronage, on relying on Washington, believing that it is Washington that holds the key to kingship as opposed to the Saudi people. And that's why we see today that Bin Salman's policy is not in the manner of King Faisal or King Abdulaziz in terms of trying to bring uh, the tribes together, trying to uh, encourage uh, closer interaction with the people, but more about buying off the people with a neon project, with promises of making cities like Paris, with establishing uh, shopping malls with nice fancy English names, such as Boulevard You Walk, which is uh, going to be built in uh, the holy city uh, of uh, Medina. I do think that uh, in this regard, the realities of the politics of the region has meant that countries like qatar like the uae like saudi arabia believe that their security is primarily uh, contingent upon uh, washington uh, be, uh, or aligning with washington's interest as opposed to protecting their own people and in many ways if we talk very crudely uh, they do have a point if there is Uh, a coup that takes place in saudi arabia it is unlikely that the saudis will take to the streets to prevent it it would require a u.s intervention when the qatari uh, emir hamad bin khalifa al-thani overthrew his father uh, it was the u.s that intervened to prevent his father from uh, seeking to restore himself to power so i do think that these all dynamics all contribute to this disconnect between the regimes and the people
0: and and of course Israel then becomes a player as well. I mean, we talked about Washington, but we have seen that Mohammed bin Salman meeting with Netanyahu and Pompeo just this past weekend. You know how much of a player then is Israel in terms of uh, this uh, these ruling elites showing up their power.
1: In November uh, 2018, the former Qatari Prime Minister Hamad bin Jassim gave an inter- interview to France Van to France 24 in which he said that when the Arabs get close to Israel, it is not because they like Israel, it is not because they want to recognize Israel, but it's because they believe that Israel has the keys to the White House and to the Congress, that if you want influence in Washington, you need Israel on board to lobby on your behalf. Uh, And we saw that in 1996 when Qatar uh, offered ties uh, with Israel in exchange for preventing Uh, a Saudi uh, invasion to restore the former uh, emir. We saw it uh, with regards to uh, the UAE normalization in which they're seeking greater influence in the White House to leverage against Turkey uh, and Qatar. We've seen it with the -the under-the-table relations that Gulf states uh, have uh, made with Israel in a bid to uh, leverage against one another and achieve their short-term aims uh, against their rivals. And I think Saudi Arabia is beginning to consider this in the same vein in that Muhammad bin Salman who is mired in international scandal whether that's with the Khashoggi affair whether that's with the increased uh, PR disasters with regards To Yemen whether that's with regards to the uh, PR disasters generally uh, that have overshadowed his reforms that were once welcomed uh, by uh, even the likes of you know the New York Times or or the the liberals in the Western world we see that bin Salman believes that to secure his future as he goes to war with the Islamist or Islamic elements of Saudi society he needs to ensure the buy-in of washington in other words bin salman knows that by going after the conservative influence of saudi society he cannot depend on the saudi society to support him therefore he seeks closer ties with israel to ensure washington's buy-in to ensure that should anything happen washington will take great steps to ensure that bin salman as a valuable ally is protected and stays in power and i think it's in this context that we're seeing closer ties uh, with israel take place that this meeting with netanyahu uh, potentially took place with Mohammed bin salman it is in this vein give me washington support because i cannot rely on my own people and i want to guarantee that i promise to uh, align with your interests in exchange for you ensuring that nothing happens to me and that i continue to rule saudi arabia for uh, decades to come
0: yes yeah, so that's that's a very interesting point you make sami and also i'm thinking too of the role that Mohammed bin zayed in particular and and the saudis have played in terms of supporting uh, Sisi, supporting various other uh, dictators in shoring up their positions, again, attacking what they view as political Islam, because that does represent a threat to them. I
1: think it, it does. But I, but I think when it comes to the Arab Spring, I think one thing that, that that's really underplayed is that Uh, In the beginning, Saudi Arabia, for example, did not move against the Arab Spring. I think it's always important to uh, assess the perceptions of what took place in the Arab Spring. So without going into too much detail, but it's always important to understand that where there is general consensus that Tunisia was an organic Uh, revolution where there is a consensus that egypt was predominantly organic even if it coincided with the army's desire to overthrow mubarak who wanted to to put his son uh, as his successor in contravention to the army's unwritten uh, rules Uh, i think when it comes to libya and nato's intervention and the like I think Saudi Arabia uh, perceived an existential threat not necessarily in that democracy would come to Saudi Arabia but that uh, Qatar would be the prime beneficiary uh, of the Arab Spring and that the Muslim brothers were antagonistic to Saudi Arabia. I've always argued that uh, if the Muslim brothers had a better relationship with Saudi Arabia we may not have seen the the counter to the Arab Spring that we saw from Saudi Arabia. With Mohammed bin Zayed, it's a bit different. Mohammed bin Zayed is a case of jumping on uh, an environment which suddenly became conducive to asserting itself and taking advantage of the weaknesses of Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, Egypt. But I do think that it's always important to highlight that in Saudi Arabia in particular, contrary to what is often uh, touted, uh, King Abdullah and King Fahd and the kings before him uh, actually gave a lot of space for Uh, the the political islam to uh, assert itself salman al-uda and and, uh, yusuf al-qardawi and all of these other figures who are associated with political islam were regular attendants uh, uh, beside king abdullah in his councils and king abdullah has the famous saying whereby he used to say to them that when you criticize you can eat the meat but leave the bone as in uh, criticize all of my policies but don't go after the very foundations of the state, and there was this general unwritten contract uh, between the two. I think uh, the Arab Spring and, and the perceptive, uh, perception of Saudi Arabia towards it, uh, I think, is, is a topic I think that hasn't been covered uh, in great depth, but nevertheless, uh, the action of uh, crushing democracy and democratic uh, tendencies in itself, of course, put Saudi on the wrong side of history uh, when it comes to this. Uh, and I do think when it comes to Mohammed bin Zaid, and indeed in the wider Israeli issue, it's always important to highlight that in democratic societies in the Arab world, normalization doesn't happen, Israel doesn't get recognized, and there are no ties that we see today, in the manner that we see today, uh, taking place.
0: Now Sami, just to sum up, will the political structures in place now, will they survive, and will the various elites that hold those structures up, will they survive the disconnect, or should they start... Uh, you know packing their bags
1: i think there needs to be serious questions asked not just of the of the regimes but also of what the international community desires for the region the reality is that uh, the arab spring uh, while it was celebrated as a, a milestone in uh, achieving democracy uh, in some of those arab countries it was the, it was actually received more as a security threat and uh, a, a, a harbinger of chaos Uh, to Europe at a time in which you have the rise of the far right, where you have Brexit, uh, where you have uh, economic uh, decline. Uh, The US saw it as a a case of chaos and that's reflected in Obama's uh, implicit allowance of the UAE to embark uh, on overthrowing the democratically elected president uh, in uh, Egypt. In other words, the Arab Spring, which took everybody by surprise, uh, was not necessarily welcomed wholeheartedly. And there is this genuine question now as to whether there is a genuine desire to see democracy uh, in the Middle East or whether there's a desire to secure stability uh, and security, even if that comes at the expense Uh, of the local populations and i think that's why when we see a politics in which bin zayed is offering normalization of ties with israel or muhammad bin salman offering uh, to uh, implement liberalization of saudi society when there's a genuine consensus that it's not necessarily uh, uh, something that saudi society wants i think the question that's asked here is uh, or, or, or the point that should be made here is Bin Zaid and Bin Salman believe uh, that to win over the international community, they must present themselves as the guarantors of stability, of security, and of the social engineering mechanisms that prevent uh, the Arab population from expressing a desire that that the international community does not necessarily uh, prefer. And that's why I think the issue is bigger than Bin Salman and Bin Zayed. It's bigger than normalization of ties with Israel. It's bigger than uh, this idea of authoritarian uh, regimes. The question is that why is it that the authoritarian regimes continue to believe that if they can guarantee security and stability, that will allow the international community to recognize them and turn a blind eye to attacks to repress the arab electorate the question is not for the regimes but for the international community do they truly want democracy in the middle east do they truly want a respect of the popular will in the middle east and are they committed to it or do they want a specific particular outcome and that uh, it doesn't matter whether that's achieved via democracy or via authoritarianism and i think that's the serious question it's easy to blame the population and believe that this is a backward society that's been damaged by socio-economic deprivation deprivation but the reality is that when you go to the middle east and you go to the arab world it's a very cultured environment it's a very educated environment you have a young population that are very educated that speak multiple language that have dreams and ambitions and aims but the reality is that while we praise this phenomenon, these youth who are intent on securing freedom, the reality is that the international order as it is at the moment is not conducive to, their, uh, to, 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 uh, to essentially opening up the opportunities for them but instead is geared towards their repression be- until their desires align with what the international community deems to be conducive to the stability and security uh, of the interest,
0: to put it quite frankly, uh, of very few. Yes, well, that could be a dead-end road. Uh, Sammy, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sammy Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, We are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.